Culture Podcast, the podcast where we discuss religion, popular culture, and everything in between. I am your sociologist with the most theologist, Alan Torrance, and I'm also joined by the anthropomologist, Vivian Asimos. How are you, Vivian? I'm old. <laughs> you are old. So for our lovely listeners, um, our esteemed Vivian Asimos recently turned 30. I'm finally of the age where I need to get a job. <laughs> yeah, and your back's gonna start aching, and your and your bones I, I, start creaking. I had the very sad realization that I am now of the age where all of the things that I am doing with my life is no longer as impressive as it was before. <laughs> <laughs> are, you, are you are you making a very humble reference to the fact that you had your PhD before you were thirty? Well, like, because I was thinking, like, at twenty eight, say, I had a PhD and I had published like a book or two, and I was writing another one. Like that's impressive, mm. right? Thirty, saying that you have a PhD and you've written like a couple of books, people are like, yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, uh, that is true. But thirties are a good time, though. I like being in my thirties. You're still youthful, but you've got uh, you've got a bit of wisdom around you. You've still got some energy, some. I'll try to enjoy it. I'm on the wrong side of thirty, from what I can see. <laughs> yeah, you will be alright. <laughs> so, today we're discussing the TV show The Voice, but more specifically since this is the Religion and Popular Culture podcast. Christian nationalism. And the character Fine. of Homelander. Yeah, this is going to be really cheerful. Even though The Boys as a show is actually quite a fun romp. It has its dark moments, but generally speaking, it's quite a fun romp. Vivian, I know you started watching it. I did. Did you stick with it? I did not. I, I watched, I think, two and a half episodes? So I okay, I should I should stress that I, I I didn't stop because of the show. I stopped because of a domestic argument. Um I, I had mentioned that you had suggested that I watch this show and that I was thinking about watching it. Um and I I pitched it to my husband and I thought he seemed disinterested. But the problem with my husband is that he seems disinterested all the time. Yes, he's and, a British man. <laughs> so so it's a very like it's a very subtle difference between genuinely disinterested and actually interested, but just being English. And mm. um, so apparently he was actually interested, but just being English. And so he came home one day when I was two episodes in and was very annoyed with me. So uh, we are supposed to start watching it together. But the other problem that I have with the show is that the episodes are longer than half an hour to 45 minutes. Yes, some of them often go over an hour. And I dislike this. <laughs> mm, in which case, you will not be happy about Rings of Power. I that's it's Rings of Power's episode length is the only reason why I haven't watched Rings of Power. Yeah, I'm halfway through Rings of Power, and apparently it gets really good by the end. And I've enjoyed it. I don't actually have any problem, major problems with it. It's just that it's moving at a pretty glacial pace. Yeah, Which, I think if if your lessons about lessons, of oh course you can you can tell I'm in a teacher frame of mind. But um, if your if your episodes are that long, 
then you need to be doing something with that length to justify it. Yeah. I think I think it's a recent trend in TVs and stuff. Just to do a lighthearted conversation before we get into conversations about yeah, Christian yeah, yeah, nationalism. Yeah. No, that no, is no, a little course. bit too real. Um, but uh, the thing with TV shows is I think there is, because of it all being online and streamed, the idea of a TV show length is being very heavily played with. Mm. in a way that i i dislike there's also the idea no longer and we've talked about this before that there's no longer the idea of the monster of the week shows yeah that's right which i dislike as well i want i want a return of monster of the week i also want a return of monster of the week to books um and i i was Mm. complaining about this to my my partner recently is that like i i want a poor row again where you can just pick up a poor row book and it is a mystery that is, you don't need to have read 20 other Poirot books to understand what is happening in this yeah. one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's definitely changed the way stories are told on TV. Um, I, I really like the pacing of the boys. I think it's pretty fast paced. Um, but if you're if if you're not a long episode kind of person, I get. Yeah, I, I think it's strange because there is a lot that happens. So I only watched two episodes or two and a half episodes, but there was a lot of stuff. That mm. happened in that. So it's not like it was two and a half episodes of just like set up. Although I'm sure mm. it is set up, but it, it's it's very or things become very dramatic very quickly. Yeah, it's it's very intense from the start. There's a lot going on. So I there was a lot that happened within those two episodes. But I think it's one of those things where it's like it could have been the same exact stuff, but divided up between four episodes, and I would have been fine. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, I had I had the same problem with Sandman, which because I did finally finish watching Sandman. Um, it gets bad though, doesn't it? it? It was okay, but like the <laughs> the problem that I had was that one episode. It was one of those things where it's like the same setup across two episodes rather than one feels more cohesive to me, because if you're trying to shove two things together in one episode then it feels like it should have just been two <laughs> mm. i don't know how else to explain it it's just like one of those things where it's like it's kind of like when you're writing a book where when you're writing your book whether it's fiction or non-fiction each chapter is supposed to be like a cohesive idea but if you have two ideas that aren't super interrelated all happening at once then it's not a cohesive chapter anymore. You have two chapters that are just put under one heading. Mm. And it doesn't make the in, the contents bad, but it does mean that when you're reading it, you're like... Ab- absolutely. Um, I, 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 do, I do see what you mean. It's, um, it's, it's an interesting show because um, I'm not a superhero guy, particularly. Mm. I, and I think that cinema at the moment is pretty oversaturated with superhero films. Yeah. But that's another rant for another time. What I like with about the boys is the spin that it puts on the superhero formula. So, for those who haven't seen it, the premise is, imagine our world, just like how it is now, but there also happens to be a certain minority of the population who has superpowers, and they have then been commodified into a very neoliberal package. So, the superheroes are known as soups, 
and there is an organization in which they um that they work for and it's kind of like the justice league avengers kind of thing but then as the show moves on you find out that they're being um controlled by powers that the neoliberal types who are marketing them so they make movies based on the superheroes action figures costumes and stuff like that but they are actual superheroes um but you see in the show as well that they've spent more time plugging themselves and doing these movies than they do actual superhero work mm. and at the top of the the chain of command of superheroes is a character called Homelander who is your Captain America Superman type superhero. He can fly, he can shoot lasers out of his eyes. Um, he's really buff. He's got beautiful blonde hair. He's he's everything that comes to mind when you think of an American superhero. His um his outfit as well is also very American. Yeah, I was gonna say his his outfit kind of is a lot more like Captain America in the sense where it is it's like the it feels very like it's basically just him wearing a flag. Oh no, he's not, but it, yeah. it basically is. Yeah, yeah, and um, he is an incredibly corrupt character. He's a narcissist. cares about his image. cares about being loved, um, particularly by his uh, followers and. The way they write him is really good in the show, and the way he's played is really good, because he is simultaneously utterly pathetic, but also terrifying. So there'll be scenes where he's just a pathetic man-baby, and then it'll flick in an instant, and he's actually really terrifying. Mm-hmm. So the boys, the titular boys, are a group of renegades, rebels... They're not suits, and they're trying to take down this organization. They're trying to take down Homelander and show that superheroes are. Well, these particular superheroes are behaving in a corrupt fashion, and they're being led by Carl Urban as an absolutely fabulous Cockney accent. <laughs> what do you think of the Cockney accent? Um. It grew on me. I like it. It kind of reminded me of uh, like the English version of um, uh, Daniel Craig's accent in uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. in Knives Out. <laughs> in Knives Out, where it was one of those where like when you when you hear it out of context, you're like, "What is even happening?" Mm. But within the context and stuff, it becomes. It becomes like it makes sense and it kind of fits the character a bit more. Have you have you heard that um, the Daniel Craig character, when they were doing, they were filming it, the director would purposely get Daniel Craig to do a couple of takes that weren't being used. So that way he'd be really tired and his accent would be even more crazy. Really? But, so, and then they that. would do that one um, because they just, they really loved this like completely off the wall accent that he was doing and that's that's how the Carl Urban accent is like always really striking me is it's like what is even happening but it really fits the character in a way and it, it, it definitely fits the character yeah. it helps to I think bring that sense of what you were saying about how it is a bit off the walls in a in a weird silly way while also being a bit serious at the same time the show that mm. um I think his accent helps to bring the levity into it that yeah. like from the from the get you're like this guy like <laughs> yeah 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 and it's 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 clearly played for laughs as well yeah 
and there's a lot of comedy throughout the show. It's very, it's dark comedy, mm-hmm. but it, but it's there. I laugh a lot during it, but maybe because I'm unhinged, <laughs> because there's a lot of blood, there's a lot of gore. Um, it's definitely not a show for everyone. Yeah. Um, but I, I do think it's really good. I like the spin and the superhero formula, and to bring it to our main purpose of our conversation. I like what the show says about politics and um, neoliberal culture, um, corporate marketing and so on. There's a lot of really interesting conversations happening in the show beneath all the spectacle of all the blood and gore and colour and swearing every few minutes and uh, and so on. There, There are some interesting things going on. And the character of Homelander is particularly interesting because from the outset he's clearly like a American nationalist character with the way that he looks and so forth. And as the first season moves on, I don't want to say too much to you because part of the part of the joy of the boys is how unexpected some of the stuff is. I'll I'll be honest with you. It's on a list, but it's on a list it's, of things that is very it's long pretty, and it's I pretty low down. Don't know when it's gonna happen. Yeah. Well, I'll still keep things, and obviously keep things uh, relevant for this conversation, but I will, um, I'll try and keep it as vague as possible for non-spoilery purposes. Yeah, but I've also seen, um, because I'm on the internet, mm-hmm. uh, I've seen a lot of like the memes and the people talking about it and stuff like that. So I, I know the, the gist of both, I mean, you kind of get a feel of, of what we're going to be talking about even in the first couple of episodes. Yes, um, yes. But because, I see parts of where it goes. Yeah. In, so in the first season, he's at a American Christian rally, and um, he's he speaks about them. He speaks about God. He speaks about Christian authority. But he's also clearly presenting himself as a messenger of God of sorts, mm. particularly because of the, you know, the divine gifts that he has. Because it's quite clear that while all these soups have wonderful powers. He is the most powerful of them all. He is the Superman type, you know, impossible powers. Um, so he definitely um, presents himself as some kind of godly gift. There's um, there's scenes of him at Christian rallies in which he will then fly into the crowd in a crucifix pose, and the crowd will come and attempt to touch him and so on. But I think that something that the show definitely then started to lean more into as the seasons go by. Um, and I'd be interested to contrast this to the comic that the show is based on. Um, he clearly becomes an allegory for Donald Trump. Mm. Even more than he already is at the beginning of the show. That towards the end, specific incidents from Trump's presidency will be directly parodied in Homelander's character, um, particularly support that he ends up getting from far-right conspiracy theorists, QAnon-type groups. Um, There are protests outside his corporate building between the left and the right, and common parlance like Liptard is used. Um, But there is an incident at the very end of season three and it's the cliffhanger that the show went on, which you may have seen because it did become a bit of a meme, um, where it's a direct satire of when Trump said that he could shoot someone in New York and not be arrested. Yeah. 
because he is so loved and he is so special and um yeah so there's a really interesting conversation to be had about homelander because he is not only this donald trump allegory but he is also the the one who has supported christian nationalists which of course donald trump did as well so let's talk about christian nationalism in america <laughs> which is an issue um as we recalled this Donald Trump has recently announced that he will be running, well, he's going to attempt to run. Those are two very different things. Yeah. He's going to attempt to run to be president again. His his core base, in my opinion, are incredibly organised. Mm. And you see that in the boys show as well, that Homelander's supporters are incredibly organised. Homelander is doing the last season, I think, has a tantrum on TV and just talks about how special he is and how he shouldn't have to apologise for things that he's been accused of doing, and his supporters just lap it up. They just absolutely lap it up. And um, to bring the conversation back to something that we discussed in the last episode of this show, he fits the archetype of the charismatic leader, the individual who is granted authority even by his own followers. I'm using gendered language here because I'm referring to uh, Homelander. But you also see that with Donald Trump as well. And Donald Trump would never possibly think that his support and his charisma isn't something inherited um, to him personally. Mm. He would... I, I think if you told him that he's only... He's only seen as special because his followers seem as special, not that he's inherently special. He would probably disagree with you, but I'm also not expecting Trump to have read stuff like Weber. So Yeah, well it's 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 interesting because I think obviously in in the boys you have a complicated because some some of the people in the show you can almost objectively say is special. Because mm. not everyone has super... It's not like everyone has superpowers, but some people are just more skilled or something. It's that for some reason, some individuals are given powers and some are not. Watch the show and you'll find out why. Oh. Well, but so, but basically what I'm saying is that there is an inherent specialness that is more, say, biological rather mm. than sociological, which yes, is not necessarily... Is well... Trump I, can't <laughs> shoot lasers out of his eyes. I was going to say, is it necessarily how it works here? But, there, you know, obviously if Trump was black, he would have a very different <laughs> different fan base. Um, he would have an entirely different life, wouldn't he? <laughs> well, yes. But you know what I mean? Like, there, there are some biological... Uh, necessities for that being is true. in charge of certain groups. That is true, and um, for being seen as special. And Homelander definitely does have things that are quote unquote special. Well, yeah, obviously he's. Uh, I don't know if we've described, but he's he's a white dude with blonde yes. hair and yeah. oh yeah yeah blue eyes blue eyes the, yeah yeah you know <laughs> we're not yeah. saying we're just saying <laughs> yeah and you know he is able to fly he does have the super strength he can shoot the lasers out of his eyes you know he is he is your stereotypical saturday morning superhero 
character. But they make him intensely evil. Yeah. And um, part of that is how he whips up his fan base as the show moves on. Um, because he kind of starts losing control of his group because he has a bit of a bad PR, um, a few bad PR incidents. But he attempts to then spin that. And his supporters don't mind. And if you think of all the controversies surrounding mm. Trump, um, you know, all sorts, I'm specifically thinking about the unsavory remarks he made about um, things he can do to women because he's rich and successful and so on. Um, his supporters don't care. I, because I didn't get that into it, and I'm, I'm curious as to how the show either did or didn't include certain information but um particularly thinking about some of the issues going on in america right now um did the show because i know that the show tackled issues of violence against women pretty quick um yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah but lots of trigger warnings for the show if you're interested in it's watching. not a show for everyone like it is um, an 18 certificate show like. yeah and I, I think that at least with the violence against women aspect of it, there was a bit of sexual assault and things like that. And I think the way that they portrayed it was, uh, I think, too realistic <laughs> in, in a sense. Um, yeah, because I, I, know, I know which incident you're referring to. Yeah. Because you've only watched the first few episodes. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. And I mean, which is good, because I think sometimes when TV shows take angles with it they kind of make it almost like the only people who would do things are and the way they do it is by twirling a mustache and you know yeah. what i mean but like and the show it, definitely takes it serious as it goes on as well yeah it takes yeah but it seriously. is it is much more inherent and quiet and subtle and and terrifying than that um but i was wondering do they tackle issues that are lgbt at all in the show yes okay Yes, they do. Um, one of the soups um, is boy, and uh, there's a really interesting few episodes about how that is marketed by the Soups Corporation, um, by making her like the Rainbow Warrior and so on. And um, there's also clear homophobia on Homelander's part. Yeah, because I was about to say how how that then is related to the Homelander yeah. contingencies. Um, yeah. There's another character who turns up towards the end of season three who is a bit of a... almost like a Homelander part two who is outwardly homophobic. Mm. Like, e e extremely explicit. And um, it's definitely seen as aligning with um, Homelander's worldviews. Uh, Homelander talks about America being special. There are moments in the show where he ta um, he'll talk about troops, um, as in the American troops, talking about them as soldiers from God, for example. And um, he wants to turn the soups into an American military, fighting for America, mm. not for the world or against you know your cliche evil superpowers. No, it's using the soups as an army for America. And um, some some of the controversies he ends up, ends up being involved in is he, he'll 
troops will be fighting uh, out in another country and then there's a recorded somebody records a clip on their phone of Homelander just flying down shooting a terrorist with his laser eyes smiling for the camera and then flying off and then you find that his laser went through and killed some troops and um, this becomes a this becomes one of his one of his several negative PR disasters. He kind of has a because he starts at the top, doesn't he? When mm. when you start watching the boys, he's at the top of his fame and so on. He has a bit of a fall, and then there's a rise again and a, a serious rise towards the end of season three. They're they're going full Trumpian allegory with him. Um, at the end of that, um. It was one of those incredibly frustrating cliffhangers because it was a brilliant cliffhanger, but you know you've got to wait for the next season. Yeah. Which is going to be another year, which is going to be agony because it was great. It, it was so good. It's a really good cliffhanger. One of those your, your jaws on the floor kind of uh, cliffhangers, which I haven't had in a while. So well done, the boys, for a good season cliffhanger. Well, I completely side note here, but I just thought it was fun and I don't have very many uh, educational outlets to communicate this through. I learned recently um, that the original cliffhanger in at least that, uh, you know, most white people, I think, would be aware of because uh, there might have happened before then, let's be honest. Um, but it was in a Thomas Hardy book. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, one of the characters was literally hanging off of a cliff and then they get kind of like the only other person who's with them just leaves and so the chapter ends with them alone hanging off a cliff and that is the origin of the term cliffhanger okay that's because when was that i'd have to look up when this book was published hold on because i i always assumed it was the end of the italian job with michael caine where um... oh no this was way before this is like old school novel yeah 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 because i i always think of the end of the italian job when the bus they're on is hanging on the edge of a cliff and that's how the film ends but that is very interesting um 1873 oh yeah and it was thomas hardy's a pair of blue eyes yeah that's definitely before the Italian job. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, because I, I learned this because I was in a writer's group thing and we were talking about cliffhanger endings of things. And uh, mm. they had, like, the person who was presenting had, like, loads of different examples. And quite a lot of them were people literally suspended and waiting and hanging off a cliff or hanging off of a thing because, mm. you know, suspense and drama and action. But, yeah. um... <laughs> So I can I can get that it it's going to be something that that kind of physicality is used. But anyway, that was a little side note about the history of the term cliffhanger that has uh, no that relevance to what we were talking about. But I just thought it was fun. Um, so yeah, I think we should address the um the big issue here, which is the relationship between far right politics and Christian nationalism, um, which is obviously a bigger issue beyond the boys, because the boys is directly parodying it anyway. Um, so, Vivian, as an American... Oh, oh Lord, you're putting me on the spot here. Yeah, well, I'm obviously not going to ask you if you're a Christian nationalist. I know you're not. Um, <laughs> Can you imagine? Okay, sorry. But, but how, how do you see the state of Christian nationalism in America right now? 
right now. Oh, God, terrible. Um, (laughs) I mean, there's always been a really complicated relationship with um, connections between nationalism and particularly in America and um, Christianity. And and I, I should stress here a very specific type of Christianity, because obviously not all Christians would fall under the way that these people see as Christianity functioning. Um, it's primarily an evangelical, very American version of of Christianity. And um, it, it is, I mean, even growing up, it was kind of one of those things where if you either weren't Christian or you believed, even if you were Christian, but were slightly different viewpoint of it from these other aspects, then you mm. were also deemed as un-American. So it it is it is very inherently tied together. Um, just the idea of being um, a proud American, very tied to. I mean, we'd have to stand up and say the Pledge of Allegiance every day, and I know that's not a thing that it's very foreign for, for the UK here. But every morning, as a, as a as a kid, you'd have to stand up and say the Pledge of Allegiance, and in it is a reference to. Um, you know, I, I can't remember the phrasing of it now because it's been so long, but it's like an, I believe in God. Like I pledge myself to God. It's under God. It's like, there is an explicit reference to it. And it's the Christian God. And it's the Christian God. It is a very specific understanding of what that means. Um, Mm. and, uh, when I was in high school, me and a couple of my friends started to refuse to, to say the Pledge of Allegiance for multiple reasons. Uh, many of them being things like LGBT groups, not having rights, um, issues with women's rights, you know, you know, mm. the whole thing, everything that's happening now. Um, mm. And uh, we actually got in trouble with our school because we were refusing to say the Pledge of Allegiance. Um, yeah. But because uh, because I was one of the smart kids, um, they decided to overlook it and not get us into too much of a trouble. Because really? <laughs> it would basically if they say got us out of the school or something, then it would poorly reflect on the school because they would have less of the kids that they could brag about. Wow. So they just let us get away with not saying it anymore. But I had a, stu- a teacher specifically reported us because of us being very un-American and not saying the Pledge of Allegiance because of, of these issues. Um, that is so interesting. <laughs> but that's what I mean. Like, it's such a it's such a foreign idea um, yeah. now living in the UK. Although, I mean, we can talk about some of the issues. The UK is starting yes. to go that way. <laughs> I was about to say, not to say that the UK is entirely, you know, devoid of some of these issues, um, but it, it's a very different history. Mm. It's a very different subset. It's a very different kind of conversation. You don't have a Pledge of Allegiance, but I think in the UK you still do have the idea of if you are British, you are Christian idea. It's very codified as well, isn't it? Because it's not just that unspoken, you know, cultural norm, but having kids to do the to do the pledge of allegiance every day that's a system that's been it's put a, in it, place yes. there. and the thing is is that i think a lot of people if you say brought up the fact of like hey i don't believe in god i'm not going to say the pledge of allegiance because there's god in it um mm. i think people would be like oh whatever like is there even that there who really cares like it it wouldn't be seen as that's not why they think they're saying it but the fact that you know, we can step back now, especially as adults and as sociologists and anthropologists and, and step back and say, actually, you know, the fact that this is here and the fact that this is codified and the fact that this is embedded within the culture is something that mm. is it's telling someone who grew up Muslim, for mm. example, mm-hmm. you are not of yeah. this. 
yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Although obviously some people might be able to say interpret, well, my version of God, I will kind of understand this. But if you're saying, but, yeah, but we know what they're referring to. We know what they're referring to. And, he, and let's just say like, I mean, I, the second half of my life, I grew up Buddhist. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, Buddhism has a very, depending on what branch of Buddhism and you're in, uh, most of the time has a very loosey goosey ideas <laughs> of, mm. of divinity and whether or not there is any. And so how do you then understand if you believe in more than one god how do you then Mm -hmm. understand um these kinds of ideas but it's not stuff that you would typically think of as an issue because if you're american you're christian yeah so the idea of monotheism being the dominant narrative as well um monotheism above polytheism just quite tylorian to bring our old friend back into this podcast our lovely friend um but that is really interesting because it is othering yeah. the other communities. It's, it's, it's very and much. And it, and it gets tied into all sorts of other things. I mean, you were talking about the, the presence of, um, you know, conversations about war and soldiers, both actual and metaphorical, which also, mm. com- you know, we were talking about the metaphorical war in our Dune episode. Um, but in uh, here you know, in the boys, it being both metaphorical and actual and the same thing kind of happening in America. And when you're a pacifist, which is something that I interacted with, again, I was against the war in Iraq. And that was seen as being un-American to be against a war. Oh, you know, that's so interesting because sorry to interrupt you for a moment. No, no, being, against, being against the Iraq war, certainly in my school and, you know, the, the, the culture that I grew up with in, um, in South Wales, that was the dominant narrative. Yeah. Was that the Iraq war was a bad thing. Exactly. And I, I think it was, to be honest, it was one of the reasons why I decided that I wanted to move to the UK. Was mm. I was seeing the way that it was being, the discourse around the war Just in, the thought of the UK being better. I, this is what I'm saying, right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is what I'm saying. Like, I am aware, I am very fully aware, all of my listeners, that the UK is very far from perfect there's a lot of issues and i'm seeing some of the stuff that was cropping up in america back when i was much younger starting to crop up here and in a lot more obvious ways um so i i know it's not perfect but there is that thing of just how and how much some of this is embedded in the culture that i don't know necessarily is as historically embedded as it is here in the uk Mm. where therefore i don't know how much it can gain as solid of a ground because of a different history and yeah. a different history impacting the way that the culture develops and is is understood. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, for example, the presence of of certain pacifistic understandings is a little bit more normal normalized in the UK. Okay. Um, all right. Uh, I I. I mean, I'm going to be editing out a lot of this stuff, but I'm I'm very sorry for listeners if this seems really disjointed. But both Alan and I have had plumbers visit in the middle yeah, of this episode, so there's going to be noises of like hitting around and us having to come back from letting people in or yeah. people's ringtones going it's off in the place. background. We're yeah. so we're professionals. <laughs> we are professionals. But we are also early career academics with uh, schedules that we need to keep to. You say early career. I say, what career? <laughs> you know, um, is it the AHRC that 
that uh, classes early career scholars as the first nine years? Uh, I thought it was AHRC was only five. Is Somewhere only is five? only five. But I... still, the idea of that still being early career yeah, says a lot, doesn't it? It will, yes. I mean, they but, might have extended um, it to nine because of, you know. So, yes, <laughs> uh, coming, back to, coming back to this idea of, you know, Christian nationalism just being embedded in. Mm. The, the state in America, because I know there's a check, separation of church and state, but there isn't. We've, yes, such, we've talked about this weird, before. That's such a weird thing. We've but, talked about this before, and, and I remember having an argument with students in the UK about it, um, of them being like, I don't know what you're talking about. We we don't, you know. And I said, do you think, do you think that the UK, within the next two years, because this was... Um, this was probably right before Boris Johnson uh, in in the UK timeline. So just to give a little bit of context. And I said, do you think that you, that the UK would choose actively choose to bring into power a Muslim prime minister? Mm. And they said, well, I mean, maybe it would really depend on, and I went, what about a pagan one? Do you think that they would do, you know, someone who identified as a neo-pagan? Do you think Mm. that, and they were all like, Oh no, probably not that one. (laughs) No, I mean, there was controversy about the fact that Corbyn's, um, probably an atheist that says he's agnostic. Mm. I remember that was a controversial issue at one point. Yeah, I mean, there was leader. there was a whole thing when Obama was president, um, where people, I believe one of the people running it was Trump, um, was saying that he was Muslim and therefore mm. shouldn't be president. And it was mm. then the argument became, no, he's not actually Muslim, and here's here's all of the Christian stuff. And of course, my my viewpoint of always was like, so what if he is? Mm-hmm. You know, is it does yeah. it really matter yeah. if he's a Muslim? But obviously, it was so important. And it was so important to the point of them arguing back. No, 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 really, he is Christian. And it's like when your argument should be, who fucking cares? I thought we had separation of church and state, but as soon as you say that, that it's like, oh no, that he is a Muslim, and therefore, like, ooh, mm. Islamophobia. Mm. But you know, it is that thing of it's like the argument is whether or not you are a Christian, not the fact that that shouldn't really matter i mean we've only had two catholic presidents like come on yeah <laughs> like yeah absolutely i think i think um what <laughs> i'm so sorry i'm so sorry for this it's, there's only so much we can do let's no, we'll just <laughs> I, I, um what was i saying to you I was saying, I was, oh yes, what what I was finding an interesting contrast there. You were saying that you know this saying the pledge of allegiance in school was clearly not optional. Yeah. Um, and I think the closest thing we've got in the UK is collective worship. Schools mm. have to do collective worship. Um, but a parent has a right to withdraw a child from collective worship if they want to. So you don't have to, but collective worship does take place. And I used to go to collective worship every week in uh, in my school. Um, I didn't object to it. It was obviously incredibly boring. Um, because I'm, that's just the way I'm wired. I, 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 just, I just found my school's worship really dull. But we were able to withdraw from it. And, of course, there's the presence of RE as well, religious education. Mm. 
for our non-UK um, listeners, that obviously religious education is not re- religious indoctrination. It's teaching children about religion and society. But, and I can't remember if I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but I think it's worth mentioning once again. It's the only subject in UK schools that a parent can completely withdraw their child from. If you don't want your child studying RE, you have every right to write to the school and say, my child will not be attending RE lessons from here on out, and the school just has to accept it. They can say, oh, you know, have you thought about the subject in this way or that way? I know of RE teachers who've received such letters from parents and have written back saying, I respect your decision, but you've got some misunderstandings about RE, I'm not trying to convert your child or anything like that, I'm obviously laying out the basics of what RE is, but that doesn't matter. If the parent wants to pull their child out of RE, they can do it. Out of and I, curiosity, because you, you were an RE teacher. Um, yes. Uh, so you have a lot more hands-on experience, and obviously I came to this country quite late where I didn't have to take RE anymore or mm. anything like that. I, I wouldn't be um, sat here right now if I, if I didn't have RE in school. But I was wondering when it came to people removing their students or their kids mm. from it, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. what was the typical religious background of those people? Atheist. Okay. I was curious. Yeah. Yeah. I, atheist. Um, what I've seen as an RE teacher, and I appreciate this is anecdotal. I don't have any. Uh, I don't have yes, any data yes. to back this up. This is purely anecdotal. But parents of a religious disposition are generally very supportive of their child doing RE, regardless of their faith background or their religious background, mm. cultural background. Um, the objections that I've seen, I've never had it, but incidentally, I've never held a proper RE post. I, I just did cover teaching after my PGC while doing my master's and the early stages of my PhD. So I've never actually been a quote unquote proper RE teacher in a department. Um, but those whom I know have had letters from parents withdrawing their children from RE, which isn't that common, partly because a lot of people don't actually know you can do this. So they just go along with it. But some people do know. And they have always, in my experience, been from an atheistic background that learning about religion is pointless. Religion is something we should evolve beyond. Um, I don't want my child being filled with religious ideas. The letter that was read out to me by my PGC coordinator, who was an RE teacher and had received such a letter, um, she read it out anonymously, and um, one of the lines was, we would prefer if, in lieu of these RE lessons, our son could be given uh, additional lessons in more academically rigorous subjects. You, uh, that's what you need to respond. How Tylorian of you. Yeah, and... Um, of course, she responded with the typical. Well, yeah, I mean, obviously, you've got, you've got misconceptions can't, can't about Can't be Ari. as assholey as I would like. Um, but she, but regardless of what she said, it doesn't matter mm-hmm. if they want to remove their child. They want to move their child. I find it incredibly frustrating because you couldn't remove a child from a political science class because you vote Lib Dem, and they're learning about the Conservatives or whatever. 
Yeah, yeah. I remember when I was, and this will bring us back to Homelander, but we, I was teaching, I, I taught undergrads, which is slightly mm. different and <laughs> they, they don't have a choice. Um, and in one of them, we were doing uh, lessons on politics and religion and politics. And I had a mm. student actually tell me, why are we talking about politics? This is a religion class. And I, I had to be like, um, mm, shall I show you the world mm, <laughs> and yeah. how it works? Um, and this was when we had conversations. I ended up just taking it as a learning experience of saying, well, let's have a conversation about it. Let's have a conversation about what you think politics is and, and how you think religion fits into that. And then we'll, and students were able to go, uh, what are you talking about to the other student as opposed to me needing to do it, you know? Which is I always think part nice. of I think part of that is a consequence of the world religions paradigms dominance in how children have been taught about religion, mm. which Ari is moving away from as well as um, religion in the uh, religious studies in the academy. Um, but I was certainly taught through a world religions paradigm model, uh, model. So it wasn't a case of looking at themes like religion and politics, religion and the environment, and yeah. so on. It was it was fact files about religions. You know what? What do Jewish people do on the Sabbath? What does uh, what does a Gurdwara look like? It yeah. was and it, and and these religions were placed into containers, simple containers of Judaism, Islam, and um, um, Sikh or you know Sikhism, as I was taught in school, and um, the and for the record, my RE teachers were absolutely fantastic. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, we've mentioned it before. Teachers at like you know the, that level, um, basically, if you're not at university, you're needing to teach to a curriculum and to mm. things like the the exams that they are given and things like that. Yeah. That you you don't have choice, and teachers can only do so much within that constraint. And so we I, feel for you, teachers. So, yeah. So I think when a student does get to undergrad level. And they are then having to think about religion in cases of religion and colonization, religion and politics, religion mm. and gender, and so on. It's just a complete left turn from seven or eight years of how they've been taught religion in yeah. secondary school. I that that class I actually was given a gift of one of my Durham University is very notorious for never having black students. And um, one of the very few black students I taught uh, had connections to the Caribbean. And mm -hmm. her family uh, that lived there were all Rasta, which was fantastic. Because in a conversation about religion and politics, Rasta is a beautiful religion to have present and, and oh. talking about. Because Rasta started... I was going to say as a political movement, but it's not. It's a religion, and, and it was always a religion. But it was a religion reacting to what we've been talking about. This embedded, colonized religion society that is, is being present and pushed onto other people. And it was the the oppressed people going, screw you, we'll do what we want. Um, and like a lot of some of the early practices of Rasta were things like growing your own food because it mm. meant that you weren't then giving money to the people that are owning mm. the chains that you're giving, you're buying your food from. And those are, those are economic, those are political and it's tied to this religion. And so it's really diff. I mean, we talked about it all the time on this, on this podcast about how you can't untether 
religion from the rest of the things that are going on in the world because of how inherently tied it is. You can't remove religion from politics in the United States because there'll be huge holes where you're going, well, you have to understand this within this context. You have to understand what's going in America right now. It, I mean, I feel for everybody that's there that is LGBT and a woman and, um, It's it's getting really bad, and it's bad because of these particular views of very specific Christianities that are given a megaphone yeah. to promote yeah. things from, yeah. um, and and it has this unfortunate <laughs> kind of yeah, title. It, wave. Ha- it, ha- it it has the platform in the same way that Homelander has a platform. Yeah, and then that rhetoric becomes very powerful when it has that voice. Um, th- this is one of the reasons why I really don't care for Durkheim's sacred and profane binary. Mm. Because it's putting, um, it, it's setting religion apart from these issues. Yeah. It's setting religion apart from, you know, something like growing food can just be seen as an everyday activity. It is an everyday activity. But, it but it's is, a powerful activity. But it's a powerful activity that is tied to so many social processes. Mm-hmm. And that's why religion is, as you were saying, so difficult to untether. But also, the, I think, so, so, I've been thinking about this a lot over the past couple of weeks, actually, that we we spend so much time as a scholarly community saying, oh, well, you can't define religion in one sentence or one paragraph. It's impossible. You can't. Then why are we using one word? One singular word to describe such an enormous range of cultures, beliefs, actions, histories, narratives. One singular word that is, especially thinking of the word religion from from the perspective of it being an English language word, Mm. is a colonialist construct. Is a white, Christocentric, Protestant construct being applied to other cultures. We say that we, you know, that part of my problem with the lip service that's paid to decolonization, oh yes, we should do this. Oh, we, yeah, we really should do this, and then you don't see anything being done. Part of the problem there is that I think we are using a word that, from the outset, is flawed. And we need to be aware of that. That... It's a word that was closely tied with a particular understanding of religion, a particular understanding of what it means to be religious, what it is to do religion, and then it is being applied to radically different communities with different histories, different cultures, different ways of different ways of doing life. Mm. And that immediately from the beginning is a flaw in our approach. And obviously I'm not here suggesting a new word that we can use because I don't have a new word we can use. I don't think that even is the solution. But I think at the very least an awareness of that is so important for us as scholars. An awareness of the limitations of just using the word religion. And I think the way you and I may approach it, and forgive me if I'm putting words in your mouth, but we both have really fluid understandings of what religion can be my definition and idea of religion changes depending on what i'm doing Mm, yeah (laughs) which i know sounds really weird but it's it's because it has to fit 
I think we talked about this last episode as well of when I was I was dealing with Christian science and I defined them by their own understandings of it because what do mm-hmm. I care? I'm not going to sit and try to define Christianity and then fit them within that definition. It's like, no, they say that they're Christian, that's what I'm going with and that's cool. Um, exactly. Yes. And I'm going to I'm going to move on with it. Um which <laughs> which obviously that's why this is why I say some only one type of Christianity when we talk about Christian nationalism because um yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, yeah. And there's a lot of very pro LGBT Christianities out there. There's mm-hmm. um that are very wonderful and doing amazing things for those communities and you know, but not not all of them. You know. <laughs> um so um, but yeah, so I, I tend to change it depending on what I'm doing. And um, one of my favorite things to do when doing interviews with people is um, they are really interested by the fact that there's a religious scholar that is like talking to them about like, you know, cosplay or, mm. um, you know, whatever it is, like creepypasta, whatever it is that I'm chatting to them about. And so we always start with like normal things and then we get into these conversations Um and I, cause they're interested. So we get into them as, as a part of the interview is we have conversations about like, well, you know, what is religion to you and how is that understood? And then how is this separate? And is it really interestingly tied and what words would you use? And, and mm. this is where I find things really fascinating because to be honest, I think a lot of people see ties and see connections. And as soon as you start pressing them, they go, oh yeah, it's really hard to, to unpack these things. Mm. And, but yeah. they're happy to live in mess. And I think sometimes scholarship doesn't, isn't happy to live in mess. I'm happy to live in mess. Yeah. It, it's the idea of everything has to be in categories clearly defined and so on. Yeah. Um, which can be problematic because then that kind of erases some of the messiness of everyday life. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I've been thinking a lot about that recently. I, I know I met going a lot of what Timothy Fitzgerald said 20 years ago in the ideology of religious studies, but I still think it's it's a point worth mentioning. Well, this is the second episode where we've taken something from popular culture and managed to talk about academic definitions of words for twenty minutes. Yes, well, that's the beautiful <laughs> thing about uh, that's the beautiful thing about Homelander and the boys is that it's offered a gateway for us to have these conversations. Yeah, that's the phrase I always the phrase I always like using in my work is it's an avenue through which this issue can be explored. Oh, <laughs> yeah, I like I, I often use that <laughs> one. I know it's such a cliche, but I love it. Oh, how very academic of you. This is why I couldn't I couldn't bash it. I'm always just like, I don't know, it's a thing. Yeah. <laughs> My writing's always been a bit more straight to the point. Ah, so, Vivian, if people want to talk to you about Christian Christian? Oh, do beg your pardon. Christian nationalism, the boys, academic scholarship, and what even does the term religion mean? Where can they find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram. I am at Vivian Asimos on both platforms. Uh, and you can check out my blog where I talk about religion and popular culture all the time, which is incidentalmythology.com. Um, also, just as a quick reminder, we're doing a, um, like, read out your questions and comments and thoughts thing as our finale. Um, I don't, we don't have a recording date yet, but it'll be sometime probably mid-December, beginning mid-December. Um, because I'm also conscious that Alan is moving, so we need to be able to arrange it around then as well. Um, yes. 
But uh, so if you are interested in having your thoughts read out and interacted with, um, you can tweet the show at RPC underscore pod. And if you have also vacated Twitter, uh, you can go to religion, pop culture, pod at gmail.com. Cool. And on that note, you can find me on Twitter at Alejandro Thomas. Well, right now, we are recording this as there are mass staff walkouts of Twitter, and um, their offices now, I believe, are shut until next week, for undisclosed reasons. So, when you're listening to this, you you, you may you may be thinking, oh, these na- naive people telling us about their Twitter. Yeah, right by the time this comes out and you... <laughs> so, I think, I can't remember the name of it right now, because I haven't done anything with it yet, but I will plug my Mastodon account on the next podcast. Once I've hopefully set it up and done a few. Well, I don't know what they're called. They're not tweets, are they? Posts? Whatever people do over at Mastodon. That seems to be the uh, the go-to place for your Twitter equivalent. Yeah. So, uh, on that slightly depressing note, because... Oh, <laughs> well, we could while, probably do an episode on Twitter at one point. Wh- well, while I, while I have everyone's attention on the Twitter thing, is as Elon Musk started tanking Twitter... I just hit the thousand followers. Ooh, congratulations! <laughs> yeah, I was really looking forward to hitting a thousand followers because I do like Twitter. I like using Twitter, and um, yeah, woe is me. But on that <laughs> note, thanks very much for listening, everyone, and we will catch you next time. Bye.